Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Someone was visiting our church from out of town, and they had mentioned uh, a name of a church in, in my hometown of St. Louis, and the name of the church was Bayless Baptist Church. And the name kind of made me laugh because uh, it's true, Missouri is Bayless. I mean, we don't have any bays. There are no uh, really, there's not like a bunch of lakes like up here. I mean, it, this is anomaly to me. Uh, growing up, I grew up in a a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood, and nobody had lake houses. I, I didn't know anyone who had a lake house. That was a complete foreign concept to me. Uh, sometimes people would say they were going to the lake for the weekend. I mean, very rarely, but sometimes they would. And what that meant was they were going to the Lake of the Ozarks. That was the only lake there was, and that was four hours away. And so when I moved up here and I, I heard about how many people have lake houses or they're related to a lake house because their grandma or great-grandma and grandpa had a lake house and got passed down throughout the generations, it was just something that was completely new to me. And, and what I discovered uh, being here in Wisconsin is that lake houses have a way of bringing extended families together, but they also have a way of breaking extended families apart. Uh, so much, did I get an amen already? Wow. Um, and, and so when Spencer Thomas uh, came here, the director of counseling and care, uh, he came from Illinois, which might be the only Midwest state with fewer lakes than Missouri. Uh, I said, hey, Spencer, just so you know, uh, lake houses break families apart. Just a few weeks ago, I was, I was at a friend of a friend's lake house cutting up wood of a downed tree, and they were telling me about how the lake house belonged to uh, their, their great-great-grandparents and got passed down. And I said, I know this is a strange question, but did the lake house uh, cause friction in your family? And immediately, oh, yes, so-and-so hasn't talked to me in years because of such-and-such and this and that and the other thing. And so it's been amazing for me to see how these lake houses, which can be such a blessing— also break families apart. Now we know uh, it's not the lake house that break people apart, that break families apart. It's people that break families apart. And we know that because even in Missouri, where there's no lake houses, families are fractured. We know that opinions cause fights. We know that politics cause fights. Board games cause fights. Left out milk causes fights. Cell phones cause fights, and it goes on and on and on and on. All these things that God has blessed us with so often become the source of fighting within our homes. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I can think of a close relationship that I have, maybe you can think of the same, where after the honeymoon has worn off, there hasn't been some sort of tension in the relationship. There is constant conflict 
and fighting and quarrels in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our work, and yes, even in our church. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. If you would please turn to James chapter 3, it's page 1012 in the Red Bible, if you're in the Red Bible. Um, the Bible has different genres of literature. Uh, sometimes there is prophetic literature, especially in the Old Testament. There can be historical narrative literature, like in the Gospels. The book of James is considered wisdom literature. Uh, James, inspired by God himself, is sharing the wisdom of who God is and how God operates, but also how the world works as God has intended, as well as how we are to work and how our relationships are to work. And so from James chapter 3 through the middle of James chapter 4, uh, James is, is instructing us in the wisdom of God when it comes to relationships, especially within the church. And what we find out is that within the churches that James is writing to, there is fighting and quarrels and division. Uh, this de-romanticizes the early church. So many people say, we just need to be like the early church. And it's like, be careful which one you pick. Because James is writing these things because there is fighting among them. And so James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is seeking to share this godly wisdom about relationships, again, within the church, but also outside of the church as well. Last week, he started by, by sharing with us about our tongues and the words that we use. That our tongues are disproportionately powerful to the rest of our body to bring blessing and to bring curses to others. And that our tongue, what we say, is merely an overflow of our heart. And so if we are spewing evil words, it's because there is evil within our heart. And so James continues this divinely inspired teaching on relational wisdom and the condition of our heart. So let's look, James chapter 3, verse 13, and we will read through chapter 4, verse 3. James three thirteen. this is God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we come acknowledging not only that there is fighting out there in the world, there is fighting in our hearts and in our souls. There is fighting in our household and in our relationships, Lord. Sometimes it looks more sanitary than other times, Lord, but we know that there is this constant battle, tension between us and others. And we need the grace of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word to help us become the peacemakers that you have intended us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was almost 20 years ago now in Los Angeles, California, where Rodney King, who was beaten by police officers, was pleading for peace. He said those famous words, if you remember, he said, can't we all get along? Ronnie King said this question because after a jury acquitted the officers, it triggered six days of riots, resulting in 63 people being killed, 2,300 people injured, 1,200 people arrested, and $1 billion in property damage. If you look on the TV today, you'll notice not much has changed. There are still riots over shootings in Minnesota, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio. Just this past week, there's been mass shootings in Indianapolis. And so we are still left with this question, can't we get along? I mean, no wonder why beauty, beauty contestants over the past 50 years have said, all I want is world peace, because world peace doesn't seem to be coming. You know, there is nothing new under the sun. And so James says this, he asks this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Have you ever asked this question? What causes quarrels and fights in your family? What causes quarrels and fights in your workplace? What causes quarrels and fights within this church? If you're like me, my reflex is to say the other people, right? The other people, but... God cares for us too much to let us be deceived. And so from today's passage, James answers two really important questions for us. The first is what causes quarrels, but the second is what cures quarrels. All right, so first, let's look at what causes quarrels. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Let's pause there for a little bit and talk about these phrases. First, he talks about bitter jealousy, which is two words in the original Greek. And the first word is bitter, which has a negative connotation, which means that we resent others. Okay, For some reason, we resent them. The second is jealousy. And that is a more neutral word. It's not always positive. It's not always negative. It means to be zealous for something, okay? In fact, the word is zealous, which sounds like zealous. And it's not a negative emotion necessarily. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says to the church, he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have begotten you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so there is this zealousy, this jealousy for the people of God, which is right and good. But in this context, it is obvious that the jealousy is negative because it is a bitter jealousy. You see, what makes a jealousy or a zealousness good or bad is really the object of our zealousness. 
and we'll get more to that later. But he also not only says that we have bitter jealousy, but also selfish ambition. This word is often translated self-seeking. It's being consumed with getting what we want our way at the time we want it. And so the reason for fighting for bitter jealousy is because often the object of our zeal and our passion is us. It's our desires that we want to happen right now our way. I mean, you see this from birth, don't you? You can put two of these toddlers into a room with a single toy, and what will happen? (laughs) There will be fighting, right? You could actually put those toddlers in a room with a hundred toys, and what will happen? There will be fighting, because they want the same toy. As we get older, you can watch children playing in the backyard and they will fight over the rules because they want the rules to be their way. As we get older, the emotions don't change, but the toys do. The luxuries do. All of us struggle with bitter jealousy. Jealousy towards others who have something that we want. And one of the signs of bitter jealousy in our hearts is that when someone else has something that we want, we cannot rejoice with them in our heart because we become bitter and we think we are the ones who should have that. We deserve to have that same thing. Let me give you an example. So in our community group, we talked about what, what causes you jealousy. And, and for me, one of the things that I get jealous about are people who have weekends, uh, who work five days and then take off on the weekend and get to relax and unwind. And I'm not saying this for you to pity me. I have, there's advantages to my job. I can take off to go to my kids' games when I want. There's flexibility, which many of you don't have. But something I struggle with jealousy over is, is people who have a five-day work week. And if you work four tens, oh, it's really a struggle for me. That's like a dream job for me. Four tens would be fantastic. But, but I struggle with jealousy, and I know when I'm struggling with bitter jealousy because if someone is telling me about a trip they went on and, or how they enjoyed their Saturday and how wonderful it was, there are many times I can rejoice with them, but there are other times I am just overcome with bitter jealousy. Now, I don't say anything, but that is evidence of bitter jealousy in my heart when I cannot celebrate when others are enjoying the good gifts of God that are not intended for me. And so verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't lie against the truth. And so here's the truth. The truth is this, that God is all-knowing, that God is a good father, and that God has given to you what you have, but he has also withheld from you what you don't have according to the wisdom of his grace and love. And so what happens is we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves, I need that to be happy. I need that to be satisfied. I need everything my way. Now, James continues, and he tells us the origin of this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in verse 15. He says, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. It does not come from God, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This wisdom says, get all you can now because this life is all that you have. And so eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. 
If you want to be happy, fulfill all of your desires, whether they're sinful or not sinful. Fulfill them all. Not only is wisdom earthly, this wisdom earthly, it's also unspiritual. It's devoid of the Holy Spirit. And James also tells us that it is demonic. You see, it was the demons who revolted against God. It is Satan who thought he knew better than God. It was Satan who wanted the glory of God. Satan wanted everything to be about him. And so self-centeredness, self-focusedness does not come from God. It comes from the ways of the world and the demonic world. James continues in verse 16 to describe what causes fights and quarrels. And it echoes verse 14, but he says this, For where jealousy, negative jealousy, and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The disorder James is talking about is relational disorder. We can think of it as broken families or broken churches. It's the opposite of peace and harmony. It is unstableness in relationships. James also says our bitter jealousy and selfish ambition leads to evil, every vile practice. It leads to stealing, to manipulation, to slander, to gossip, to unrighteous anger. It leads to compromising God's word in order to get what we want that we think will make us happy. Fast forward now to chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. He continues this theme. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James is saying our selfish passions put us in a wartime mentality towards other people. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder, right? These are the evil practices that come out. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, when we are living out of self-centeredness, we don't come to God in prayer to understand God's will, but try to conform him to our will. In a way, we turn God into this divine vending machine who has to give us what we want or we start banging against it until it drops what we have selected. Now, it's great to go to God and to present your requests to God, whatever those might be. But the way we respond to God, especially when he says no, tells us if we come to him with pure motives or with selfish motives. And so let me ask, what does your prayer life look like? Are you praying to a God who is your vending machine, who must give you whatever you want whenever you want it, or else you get angry? Or do you pray to God, who you know is your father, who you trust in his goodness and his wisdom and his control, knowing that even if he says no, it is for your good. So what causes quarrels? With God and with others, this is the summary. The large majority of time, what causes fights, what causes quarrels is self-centeredness. It's selfishness. You see, sin is always selfish, and selfishness is always sin. So often we are focused on us, and we fight and quarrel because we want things our way. Let me give you an example. I'm a, I'm a man who likes a clean backyard, okay? When I come home, I like it to look like 
a golf course in the backyard. Now, I, I don't so much care about a clean side of my bed, as my wife will tell you, but I really like a clean backyard. And many times I come home after work, especially in the summer, and I look into the backyard and it looks like someone abandoned a garage sale, okay? There are socks, there are shirts, sometimes there's underwear out there. I don't know where that comes from. There, there's balls, there's tennis rackets, there's cones everywhere. And so I look into the backyard and sometimes I get very angry about this because this does not play out according to my wishes and my desires. And so I will start to bark at the children, come out here, clean up the yard, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I think we need to teach our kids to be responsible, to clean up after themselves. But there is a far different disposition towards my children when it is about me compared to when it is about them. Because when it is about them, I can come alongside them and I can say, hey, let's go outside. Let's clean up the yard together. And it is a, it's a moment of peace and it's a, it's, it's a moment where we are learning and growing together. But so often, Dan's kingdom is violated. And when Dan's kingdom is violated, I lash out, whether that be to my children, to my wife, to other people. This is just one of many examples. But here's the thing. What causes quarrels and fights among us is almost always selfishness and self-centeredness. It's about getting what you want. And so that's what causes quarrels with God and with others. But what cures quarrels? Not only cures quarrels, but what helps avoid quarrels or fights among us. And remember, James is talking about our relationship to one another. In verse 13, he says this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let me just, how would you answer that question? What makes someone wise? Maybe you say they say really wise things, right? Or they can quote different Bible verses or something like that. That's not how James answers this question. He says, you can tell who's wise among you by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James is saying, you don't know who is wise by who says certain things, but who lives a beautiful life. This is what the word good conduct means. It means something that is beautiful. And so if they live a beautiful life and beautiful relationships with other people, these are wise people. You know, there are people, and you may know some people like this, who can quote proverb after proverb after proverb to you. But if you look at their resume, what you find out is they have burned bridge after bridge after bridge with neighbors, with friends, with churches. They have pretty much ruined every relationship they've been on and distanced people from them. But they assume that they are wise because they can quote all of these proverbs about relationships. And James says that is not the wisdom. That is not the wise man. The wise man, the wise woman is the one who can foster peace among relationships because all relationships will have tension. But it is the wise who can work for true peace. He continues and says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. And then I love this phrase. If you remember one phrase from today's sermon, remember this. In the meekness of wisdom, in the meekness of wisdom. See, worldly wisdom is arrogant. It is self-seeking, self-promoting, and it gets angry very quickly. But godly wisdom is meek. Or another way of saying it is that, is that godly wisdom displays meekness. 
It is firm in the truth, but humble in its application. Now, what's interesting is in most cultures and in most civilizations, meekness is not a positive attribute, but a negative attribute because meekness means weakness. But within the scriptures, we see God is always saying that meekness is a characteristic of the godly. Just in James chapter 1, he said, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So be ready to share the good news of Jesus with others. And then he says this, Yet do it with meekness and respect. Numbers 12 honors Moses by saying that he was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. Psalm 37 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Isaiah 29, I love this verse, says the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Who wants fresh joy in the Lord? I do. Says the meek will inherit fresh joy in the Lord. The Lord. And of course, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so here's the question What is meekness? If it's not weakness, what is meekness? Well, meekness is a posture of humility and gentleness of spirit, but also firmness in the truth of God. One definition of meekness uh, is this, and I think it's a helpful definition. It says, Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. Uh, this past week, I had the privilege of attending uh, Sue Mako's funeral. She's the mother of Mike Mako, who's a member here. And, uh, and her husband, John Mako, is a state representative. I asked him for permission to share this story with you. But he's a state representative from Brown County. And during the funeral, he shared this story about how he had been working on a piece of legislation for a year. And he got some bad intel uh, that a Democrat was trying to undermine this legislation. And he got very angry about it. And so he sent out a message with words that he would later regret. But then he goes on to tell the story. And it's such a cool story. He says, when this Democrat... Uh, colleague, this Democrat colleague, got wind of John's message uh, that he sent to this group of people. Uh, he did not call John up and berate him or harass him or defend himself, but rather he came to John and he said, John, how's your wife doing? He knew John's wife was sick. He came to John to care for John. And John made the statement, something along the lines of, just because we are rivals does not mean we are enemies. This Democrat responded to this Republican with meekness, with strength under control. John showed meekness as well by sharing this story and confessing his own failures. You know, I think so many times we are trained to hate politicians and be so critical of politicians. Politicians have a very difficult job. And as we get an insider look into these political ongoings, what we see is many of these politicians are approaching their jobs with meekness and wisdom on both sides of the aisle. Meekness is strength, but under control. Let me give you another definition of meekness, godly meekness. Godly meekness is a gentleness of spirit while rooted in the truth of God's word. 
It is a gentleness of spirit while rooted in the truth of God's word. I mean, here's the thing. Anyone can speak over someone else. Anyone can post something offensive on social media or send out a hurtful text message to others. Anyone can bark out orders to their family or to their employees. But Christian meekness of wisdom takes divine strength. Meekness of wisdom allows us to listen to other people first before we share our thoughts. Because James says we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Meekness of wisdom allows us to value the other person more than winning the war of words with them because we know they are made in the image of God. Meekness of wisdom allows us to disagree with others in such a way that they still feel loved and honored and cherished even if we don't come to the same conclusions. And so what avoids quarrels among us is meekness of wisdom. Verse 17 and 18 go on to list out some of those characteristics. I'm out of time, so I'll go quickly through them. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom that is from above, wisdom from God is first pure. It's pure in doctrine, but also pure in our motivations. He says then peaceable, seeking to have peace within the relationship. It says gentle, right? Not harsh, but patient. Open to reason, In other words, we're not going to compromise God's word, but we are open to hearing what people have to say. We are teachable and want to accommodate when possible, but not when compromising God's word. And it goes on and says, uh, full of mercy, uh, kindness, and good fruits, impartial, not showing favoritism to the rich or the attractive or the influential, but giving the same wisdom to all. And then it says, and sincere, that is without hypocrisy. These are characteristics of meekness, of wisdom. And then he goes on in verse 18 to list out the legacy of those who operate out of a meekness of wisdom. And he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, so many Christians today from the pulpit or over social media or in whatever platform they have are trying to bring righteousness to the world through anger, through strife, and through hatred. But we are told in the scriptures that it is a soft answer that turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so the way that God has given to us to transform the world that we are in is not through anger, not through strife, but through love and compassion and humility and meekness of wisdom. Now you may be saying, you know, this just seems impossible to put into practice towards this family member or this person. We just cannot get along. But we know this is the way it should be to put God first, others second, and ourselves third. We know this is the way it's supposed to be because this is how Jesus brought peace to us. Although he is God, he did not put himself first. He put the will of the Father first. He said, Father, take this cup of wrath from me, but let your will be done. And the Father said, that is not my will. And so he put the Father first, putting his will above his own. And then he went to the cross to pay for our selfishness, our sinfulness, our our quarrelsomeness, and pay for it in full. And then raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven to send us his Holy Spirit, a spirit of meekness, and wisdom so that we can have transformed hearts and transformed lives and be peacemakers in this world. Let me end with this. For centuries, uh, people believed that 
the sun revolved around the earth. Because the sun rose in the east and it set in the west and it, it looked so small compared to the earth. Scientists balked when Nicholas Copernicus suggested that the earth actually revolved around the sun. And it never occurred to them that we might not be the center of our universe. Decades later, Galileo adopted Copernicus's theory that the sun was the center of our solar system. And for this, Galileo was persecuted. He was put in prison and then under house arrest for the rest of his life because he believed that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our solar system. And the question is, why did people get so angry? Why did they get so mad that they put this man in prison for the rest of his life? And the only logical explanation I can give is because they so badly wanted to believe that they were the center of the universe. But they weren't. And we aren't. Century later, a Swiss psychologist and philosopher was studying children. And he said this. He said, each child must experience his or her own Copernican revolution. In other words, every child must find out that they are not the center of the universe. You know, if we want peace with others... We have to go through our own Copernican revolution, first and foremost, by understanding that God is the center of our universe, and we look not to ourselves, but to Christ for our salvation. We must do that once and we, in surrendering our life to Christ, but we must do it every single day. Every single day, we must surrender our life and say, God, I am not the center of the universe. You are the center of the universe. And so the next time that you are in a quarrel, whether it be this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow or the next day, ask this question. Ask this question. In this moment, who is the center of my universe? Who is the center of my zeal? Who is the center of my wisdom? Is it me or is it God? And if you discover in that moment, which is most commonly the case, that is you at the center and not God, then it is time for another Copernican revolution. <laughs> a time for you to repent of putting yourself at the center of all relationships and all things. To take yourself off of the throne and place God back at the center. The center of your affections, your actions, and your relationships. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. For not only shall they be called children of God, but as verse 18 tells us, they will reap a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that it is hard to get along with other people when we are within close proximity of them, Lord. Or, whether, or, or if we are in far proximity towards them, Lord. Acquaintances we seem to get along with okay, Lord. But those that live under our own roof that we rub shoulders with every day, it is so hard for us to get along with them. Or those who are distant that we don't know very well, God, is easy for us to demonize them. And so, Lord God, pray that you would help us to take ourselves out of the center of our life and put you at the center of our life. To put you first and others second and ourselves Third, Lord, God, help us to engage one another in this church, but in our homes and in this world as peacemakers for Christ. Give us, Lord, the meekness of wisdom to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.